is destroyed nonchalance. Taking culture apart one episode at a time. A social commentary podcast on pop culture, fashion, film, and music. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast. Today, Serena, Rick, and I are talking about identity and connecting it to pop culture. Hello, welcome to Destroyed Nonchalance. Once again, we're joining in on a Skype call where we're giving our own personal takes on identity representation in media. And you're juggling lots of roles for the magazine, right? Well, um, I'm editorial, uh, no, not editorial, I'm assistant editor now. So yeah, I'm taking a little bit more of a role. And then we've got um, a launch party as well that we're um, putting together at the Design Museum. Um, uh, how's that going? Yeah, that should be good. Um, just invitations and uh, invites, sending out invites and stuff. So that's here in at the Design Museum in uh, London? Park. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. And how many, how many articles do you have in the magazine yourself that you've written? Um, I've got a few, actually. Um, like six. Really? Five or six. Okay, so you have a real stake in this magazine. I mean, you have a real investment in it. Um, Is it different from what you had thought it was going to be? Um, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely, like, I had a vision. Me and my editor, we kind of um, connected on the vision. It's funny, you kind of have a thought, but when it comes together, it's, 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 um, it's more than what you thought. So I suppose it just, you kind of brings it into reality when you see it, especially when you see it like um, when it's all like in the magazine and it's got all graphic design, the screen, it kind of makes it real. So it's exciting. Right. Well, congratulations on the assistant editor role. Um, so it's official now? Thank you. Yes, 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 it is. Like, would you describe it as a full-time job now? No, no, no this isn't a full-time job. It's um, okay. because it will come out twice a year. But I mean, I am doing bits throughout, but yeah, that it's not full-time. It's just as and when at the moment. Because there, there's a publication in October to celebrate um, Black History Month in the UK. Right. And then there's another one in February which will celebrate Black History Month in the U.S. Ah, okay. So that's the twice-a-year publication. Yes, exactly. And do you know, do you have any idea what the February issue is shaping up to be? No, we've got ideas, you see. We are talking about what's going to go in it. And, yeah, so it's coming up. And we're kind of, because what since we've got this one out, there are stories that um, we're thinking would be good for the next one. So it is, it's, is in the works. Wow, that's exciting. No, yeah. Again, congratulations. So, Serena, just a question. Has it been... Has it felt good to be so busy? Um, yes, oh. it has. Yes and no. I mean, it's like yeah. anything, I guess. I mean, there are times where I'm enjoying it and I really like the research and then, mm-hmm. you know, when you have to sit down and actually, you know, bang out words and then make it coherent... And interesting, um, it can be, yeah, it can feel like pressure. But then once that's done, and then I feel euphoric and everything. So yeah, it's a roller coaster. It's a creative pro- process, I guess. And um, yeah, because I mean, I I do still see your other project, your Instagram project, that's going really well. So oh, I you. I just wonder how 
how much time you try to set aside for each or if it's just uh, play as you go, like uh, you deal with the, the things as they come. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know how much you plan I mean, out. Gosh, um, yeah, it's tough. Because, but that, um, my Instagram is more like, it's, it's kind of an instinct. Do you know what I mean? It's just something I, I have to do. I mm-hmm. mean, but sometimes it, I can end up like, you know, working on a magazine or other projects all day. And then at like 10, 10, 11 o'clock at night, I think, oh gosh, I want to like post this, you know, that I've, because I've got so many things I want to post in the bag for my Georgian diaspora Instagram. Oh, they're just ready to go? Um, no, no, they're not. No, I have to curate them, put it together. So then I end up going to bed at like two o'clock. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think since working on the magazine, but even before then, and I was like that when I was studying. I don't know. I don't get much sleep or, yeah, like if I work on Georgian diaspora, I'm, I'm getting to sleep late. Yeah, and it's been like that for the past few weeks, and it is, I think, in combination with the magazine and everything else. Are you the type of person who needs a certain set number of hours to sleep? And then are you you more of a schedule person? Like, okay, I need to wake up by this time, but if I have to... No, I'm totally not scheduled at all. I'd like to be, but it never seems to... uh... (laughs) It's it's challenging to work that out. And I used to be the same way. Like, I would say, Mm -hmm. we would step until 2 or 3 in the morning, and then then I would get up around 8 or 9. And as long as I was getting 6 hours of sleep, I would be good. But now we've totally flipped that almost. Like, we're trying to be asleep by 11 so that we can get up by 5. Feel, does it feel better? Do you feel like you have more time in the day because you sleep at 11? I mean... Yes. Um, well, yeah. One, because at 5 o'clock, there's nobody around. There's no one to get in your way. And then yeah. we can get in a walk and clear our heads and get in, you know, burn some calories, get our blood pumping. And then we go and we sit and work starting at 7 o'clock. And then by, like, now, this used to be, like, our lunchtime. So we're, like, awake. But the the downside to that, or it could be, like, a kind of a, a shady benefit, is that when it's 11 o'clock and we know we're supposed to be going to bed... We don't have to be in bed by 11. We can stay up to 12 if we need to work on something. So that's like an extra hour that we didn't have before if we were just always staying up that late. So I try not to do it that much because it's really bad um, all the way around to get less sleep than you're supposed to. So, but I do really like the 11 to 5 schedule. Rick might hate it, but... I'm surprised that it's working out the way it is because I'm... I've always been the kind of person that is like waking up early. What the hell? Who does that? I hate that. Um, it's, it's surprising me how well it's working. So you feel like, so Rick, you feel like it's more productive to wake up at five? Yeah. I mean, I, I do get the, you know, having more time. It seems like a longer day, really. And... We have more hours. I'm, I'm not, I haven't been a morning person <laughs> for a long time. And I always hated having to get up because you have to get ready to get to work at, you know, 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. Um, since the work is different, I don't dread it as much, I guess. It's like, oh, I'm looking forward to, to it being tomorrow morning again so that I can sit down and, and do some stuff. Right. So it's, 
it's a little bit different and I, I like it more. The, the day flows a little bit better. So, Rick, um, why don't you update us on some of the stuff that you've been doing this week? Okay, well, um, I, I, don't, I always feel like I just have like all the media consumption part of this, uh, what we've been doing. But I mean, it, uh, outside of like the, the work on IA and the other work that I, that I do, some of the other projects I'm working on, we watch TV and we watch movies and, you know, we consume media and I find that to be interesting to talk about. So, um, I, I think last week we mentioned that we saw Hustlers, right. the, the Jennifer Lopez movie. So that, that really worked out for last week's conversation. Um, but we also saw Downton Abbey, the movie. Oh so, yeah. Serena, have you watched, do you watch Downton Abbey? I don't remember if you do or not. No, I don't actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. We had left it, um, the last season for a few years. Um, so it's been one of those shows where we know it's there and we know we will eventually watch it. Um, but the movie came out, so we wanted to see it in theaters. So we just caught up, um, with that real quick and, and I liked it. It was, it was good. It had the cinematic feel and it had all the, the highlights that you would have wanted if you're a fan. Um, yeah, so I mean, is, is it different? It must be a different experience because it's like a series. It's like a series on TV. So I guess being in the cinema, it must have like change the whole dynamic see i think that the movie was partially about that i think that was kind of the subtext going on because um i don't know if you planned on seeing it i don't know if you would even see it if you haven't watched the series that's probably one of the the downsides but um the storyline and the plot line i think was an adaptation to the changing context of the show and um but the first thing that the first impression I got was seeing that architecture and the detail and everything on such a big screen. I could really take it in and your eyes just kind of go over it. And it made me want to visit want to yeah, the place in person. Everything was a bit grander, but that grandness itself became a contention within the plot. So, yeah, no, I, I, I agree too. And it, and it made me, it makes me want to go visit um, the castle and oh, yeah, um, Highcliffe. Yeah, yeah, and and I after the movie went and looked up all the history and you know the current owners and what's happening and all these renovations that have been happening and how much the the show Downton Abbey has actually helped them, you know, save save the castle yeah, and. See. Yeah. Um, having a castle. I'm sure you've heard Fashion Week or Fashion Month is, is like going on. Oh, and, yeah, absolutely, yes. And I mean, like, I've seen highlights here and there. And it's weird how, like, London Fashion Week kind of just zoomed by because it. I went from seeing things about New York to then seeing, like, the thing everybody's talking about, which is J-Lo walking in that green dress uh, at the Versace show and... You know, that, that dress she wore in 2000, I think. Yeah, um, so that's like all over Instagram and, and everybody's talking about that. But I haven't really heard very much about um, London Fashion Week or, you know, any goings on or usually when that is happening. And this is the women's um, 
fashion week, so the men's is always quieter. So we always see, you know, Topshop doing things. Uh, you see fashionista people running around the city because, you know, we walk everywhere. Yeah, very much yeah. has a a presence with yeah central it, london we didn't really see that i mean even like yeah i don't know i mean being right next to the london edition sometimes we see like the fashion week vehicles they're they're logoed like that so you can like you see the cars coming and going oh, or yes. yeah yeah they sponsor cars that take <laughs> we we got the new iphone as well that process seemed pretty smooth right it's the iPhone 11 Pro Max. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. Um, it's all right. <laughs> I'm developing a bit. I'm ex- I love the new camera. It's excited. No, I really like to... the new phone. I really like the new camera, but I'm getting a bit of like techno fatigue where it's sometimes a bit of a struggle just to get the stuff that I have to work like I need it to work. And it can be like a constant battle. And then when you go and you switch out the hardware and you have to totally reset all of your software. And it's the just the internet yeah. that happened. And just the last two things uh, for shows. So Serena, have you ever watched the, the Dark Crystals movie or what, what is it? Yeah, uh, The Dark Crystal. Dark Crystal. It's from a long time ago. Did you yeah, see it? Yeah, I, I think I watched it years ago. Yeah, it's quite scary. I remember it being quite scary when I was young. Yeah, <laughs> have yeah you... it was, but it was interesting. And I, I had heard on that they've done a remake. Or, is it yeah, a yeah or no, it's... It's, it's like a prequel. It's a prequel to how it all got started because the movie is very dark and it's like with the new series on Netflix. I mean, we, we, we have put it off a little bit because we know it's going to be, or we were hoping it's going to be good and we don't want to watch it. But so we've decided every Sunday we'll watch a new episode. That way we stretch it out a bit more. But we watched. The first episode yesterday and my I like my jaw is in the floor it's just amazing oh, really? the, okay. the detail the detail like it's like watching that movie a movie every every episode it's an hour and I mean the level of detail that the story has and the level of detail that every little character down to the flower sprout just I mean it's it's amazing and and it's really haunting to know what happens in the movie and to know where this story kind of ends, but you're curious to see what happens in this rebellion time and how all of that builds up and how, and how really it all got started because it's, I mean, it's a big story about what would you say? Like gluttony and these skexes, um, birds are trying to like live forever. So yeah, it's about, I mean, the gluttony and um, just the exploitation of that life. the dominating class or the dominating yeah. group will impose on all of the underclass and the the kind of story that the underclass has to buy into in order to keep this dominating class in its position. That's and interesting. <laughs> yeah. There's so many parallels to, to life. I mean, with this story... You have the royals and peasants and the different clans and the eco destruction. Class. Yeah, eco destruction. Yeah, it's just. I mean, <laughs> I I was just like 
dazed for half of the show, and I, I was just like, oh my god, Troy, this is crazy how good this is so far. I don't know if I can remember the storyline. I do remember the scary birds and the storyline of the film. Yeah, I mean, just basically with the film, these uh, they they take the, the life force of... Uh, I can't remember the name of these... Uh, these beings. <laughs> the, the, I don't remember the name either. Yeah. I didn't remember the storyline all that well either. So is it okay <laughs> to watch it without... Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I would think so. I, I, I think it makes it more haunting to watch the, the movie. First? You, you would have watched the movie because it's been out for years. Yeah, yeah, I watched I remember it and being kind of like... It, oh. it really scared me when I was a kid, but I can't remember the, the I mean, actual... Even uh, the... The first episode, it's it has this really sad, scary moments, no, but it's it, not not in like you know, it it won't be like a horror. It's oh, okay. it's more fantasy, fairy tale, yeah, allegory kind of. Just because I mean, for me, it's so much darker because I know what's coming, and you see the the beginnings of it, and it's so terrible. <laughs> so I I mean I I love the show and I'm excited to keep watching it and I'm ex- I'm so happy that they made 10 episodes. It's it seems like it would be so expensive because they're using the puppetry and everything just the way that they made the movie. So I so I really no C- hope no CGI or anything. No, only CGI to remove the the strings and all of that. Um oh. so it very, I haven't even read about the yeah, production of it. Very, there's a documentary, I haven't seen it, but I've heard small things and um, the original filmmakers. And I mean, this is kind of like a lost art, you know, so it is. I hope people watch it. And I mean, I hope that more things like these get made um, just because there's such uh, such a it's such an art and it's such attention to detail with everything. Um, and the story and just everything is just so good. I'm, I know I keep gushing about it, but... But it is really good. I yeah. Mean, I think it's worth it. Um, yeah. And it, because the series, at least the first episode, has been so good, I would say if you have time, watch the first movie again. Because the second... This new series is such an investment that if you have a clearer understanding of where this is all heading, then that investment will continue to pay off yeah. as we watch the show. So I might even go back and watch it again myself. Um, yeah, and you'll see the huge differences from the technology that they were able to use back then to now. Um, everything is just so much more updated and it just it looks nice. But yeah. And, and the we did keep watching Tales of the City and it's gotten better. Oh. It's gotten so much better. I I understood your points in the first episode. And in fact, after, because we watched the first episode, I think we're on episode yeah. four now. Yeah. Four and five. after watching the first episode, Serena, I was a little worried that I was going to not like it as much because first of all, I don't know why they changed the opening credits, yeah. but Tales of the City had a certain kind of theme song or at least a melody that played through all of the theme songs kind that like connected all of the <laughs> yeah. series. And it had a very like um san francisco in the 70s 60s and 70s feel to it and now looking at it it looks like a um, a lifetime hallmark special yeah. the opening credits look and sound like that and then when you were describing it as like this forced multi-representational like just completely out of like i don't know something that that's not even reality um 
I was a bit worried that I wasn't going to like it. Yeah. What have they done to the show? But, but I think we're in episode four now. Yeah. And um, it doesn't seem so forced. You're no. not seeing a hundred people in a certain... Yeah, because that, that was a party and then you were seeing the drag queens and you were seeing like every representation box checked. But Everybody can... <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it reminded me of a conversation that I had with um, a woman when I was living in Boston and she was describing how much she liked the Cambridge area where Harvard is because it was such a mix of people that it reminded her of living in San Francisco. And now that Tales of the City has moved past the first episode and into more individualized storylines, then it's not such a forced <coughs> mix. But Rick, I thought you had mentioned the Chelsea Handler documentary we're in the middle of. Um, oh. Hello, Privilege. It's me, Chelsea. Yeah, you can talk about your week now. <laughs> so uh, we haven't finished it, but do you, I mean, are you a fan at all of Chelsea Handler? Um, I don't really know her. I know she's, um, and she's a presenter. I don't know if she's an actress, so I, I don't know much about her, to be honest. No, neither did we. I mean, neither did I for the longest time. But starting in about 2016, when yeah. Trump got elected, she just totally changed at what her approach was oh, going to be. I, she, know that she, I know that she slept with 50 Cent. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, she, I mean, she did some, you know, she, she made her name by being... Um, controversial and snide and sarcastic and everything and in the name of furthering her career um, and for the sake of entertaining everybody she did some you know some things that were are really distasteful now looking back but they were distasteful then too but that was part of the entertainment value and she's completely <laughs> changed her tune and um She's like, look, I know, and with this documentary, she's kind of saying, I know my whole career was based on a privilege that I couldn't see. And I was blonde, and I had access to this and access to that. And growing up, I was very um, self-pitying, and I felt embarrassed for what I didn't have. And then I went out to L.A., and I didn't have to do very much. It felt like a lot at the time, but my career just kind of blew up. and. Looking back on it, it's like, wow, I can't believe I've done some of the things that I've done. But with this documentary, she's looking at white privilege. And the first thing that she starts to do is speak with African-American black people about white privilege. And what gets communicated, her, communicated to her right away is that white privilege is a white problem. Everyone else is looking for equality. And for some people, equality feels like less. So white people need to take care of white privilege and everyone else, uh, you know, everyone else wants equality and that's what, that's what the expectation is. And there's so, there have been so many obstacles to that, that, you know, just getting simple equality. Um, again, we're halfway through the documentary yeah. right now. They're talking about voter suppression that's been <laughs> happening and how like tens of thousands of people every election cycle get wiped from uh, voter registration and they're denied access to voting. And yeah, so it's a really interesting take um, from somebody like Chelsea on, you know, a problem that I think a lot of white people don't feel comfortable talking about if they're aware that there's a problem and this kind of, uh, but then the resistance 
to even acknowledging that there's a problem and that white privilege is the thing. But in terms of my week, I just want to mention a book that Jane recommended to me during our last supervision meeting. And I'm loving it. I'm really loving this book. It's called Designs for the Pluriverse. And it's talking about... What? Say that again. Design for what? The Pluriverse, P-L-U-R-I-V-E-R-S-E, Pluriverse. And basically, it's talking about, um, and it's, let me say the author's name, Arturo Escobar. And um, he brings together the question if design itself can be used to help transform contemporary times uh, transform what we understand capitalism to be, what we understand consumerism to be, uh, what we understand identity and access and opportunity to be. He's drawing, and he's not a designer, um, but design applies to all of that. Fashion is designed and Instagram content is designed. But when you start applying standards and reworking and innovation to any area that becomes a process of design. Again, I'm halfway through this book and it's asking some really interesting questions and it's bringing together a lot of theories for me that I've been looking at anyway in my research, but also introducing me to some new ones. It says, Arturo Escobar presents a new vision of design theory and practice aimed at channeling design's world-making capacity towards ways of being and doing that are deeply attuned to justice and the earth. So it brings together like this um, concern for humanity, but also for the planet, and um, and you know how can design help? What I'm liking about it is it gives a little bit of breathing room to some of the theories that I'm already familiar with, but um, it's introducing me to some new theory and some new theorists, but also giving it more of like an active direction. And again, the name of it um, is designs for the Pluriverse, and it's from Arturo Escobar. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's my week, pretty much. Switching out the phone. What's the plot? Can you explain what the Pluriverse is? The Pluriverse, from what I understand, um, it's the kind of the heterogeneous connection of everyone's like particular space. Um, so it's allowing that multiplicity to exist in conjunction and side by side. And um, it's almost like he's asking if design can help bridge uh, these little you know, pockets of identity and space and place in a way that's more empowering for more people rather than it being so um, exclusionary and exploitative, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds interesting. What else have you been up to? No, that's that's pretty much it. Um, I'm back in research mode, and I guess the biggest disruption to that is um, switching out the phone. But that's pretty much taking that's taken care of now. I do like the phone. It has a wide angle lens that <coughs> you know, loving to take pictures. I like that new feature. It would have been great for to have in Paris. <laughs> oh, for Versailles. Like for Versailles yeah. and just really everything. Like, it's like you, you can now, oh, just one aspect, you can now take selfies just with one hand because it, it opens up a lot wider. So you can, it's like you have a selfie stick, but you don't have to be having a selfie stick chain. Essentially. Yeah, you get more context and it's a more flattering angle yeah. too for selfies because it's like nice and skinny back. and pretty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
<laughs> I thought what we could do this week as a follow-up to introducing some of the basics of identity and trying to understand problems in pop culture when it comes to identity. Well, so I think the biggest problem to me, and I'll talk about this more later, is when I was younger and even now, just growing up, everything is overwhelmingly a representation of white identity. So not that the stories are not good or valid, but it, it would have helped someone like me to see myself represented in media that I consumed. Right. As, uh, you know, once I had the power to control the kind of media that I was going to consume. So as a child, you, you watch what your family's watching or um, they control, you know, the things that you can watch. Um, but, you know, seeing representations of uh, a gay, Latino, Mexican person growing up were pretty much not there. Um, so I think that The things that I found were good, and I'll talk a bit more about it, you know, with some of your other questions on the impacts that some of that media has had on me. But right. um, it's getting better now, but it's not getting better fast enough, I think. I think, yeah, that's, I would say, one of the biggest problems. Not over, enough representation? Yeah, just not enough representation. I think that, you know, we can all have a piece of the pie, and right now... We're getting one slice, right? Basically, oh, yeah, yeah, and then and, and it can go for you know any other group that is not white, um, representation like Asian people just recently now getting that. You know, first they had the Joy Luck Club, and 30 years later, they had Crazy Rich Asians, um, as far as the Hollywood major movie. Right. That hadn't come out. Or you have, um, you know, African-American actors and producers and filmmakers being told that, you know, nobody will go watch it. But then you have something like Black Panther and it's the biggest selling movie, I think, at that point that came out from, from Marvel movies of any movie that they had released. So uh, it's there, the, the want and the need to have movies like that to have representations because it is we're in a mixed world and every kind of um, background should have a go, I think. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah I mean, it's, it's interesting how, yeah, when they said um, that Black Panther, it wouldn't sell. And, and then, but then taking it away from how it, might feel or is personally in that kind of context it's about the numbers mm -hmm. and the perceived numbers then and you know for a long time and still in some sense it, it, it's about what sells yeah um what they believe will sell you know and black panther you know it wasn't just for like a black audience to consume it was consumed by you know a plethora of um, oh, right. different people and different races so 
yeah. interesting. The uh, the gatekeepers. Well, that's what I was going to ask about. To ask about, do you think that the fear that the numbers might have been really high might have played into that? It's easier to not believe that it's going to sell. How much investment do the gatekeepers have in maintaining a, a white superhero face on everything? Or do you think that's like too much, too paranoid? No, no, no. That that's not paranoid at all. I mean, when you look at the history um, and the true motives of um, Hollywood, and uh, and you couple that with white supremacy and white privilege, well, it, it makes sense to uh, censor certain groups if you want to support yourself that's just how it works it's not um it's not math it's quite it's you know it's a it's a it's a means it's quite visibly there and it's very measurable oh that's exactly because i don't think no one's going to say oh we're afraid that the numbers are going to be high it's that oh it just won't sell so it's just kind of written off. But I think there's there may be an underlying fear that, oh, no, absolutely. it won't be written off. Of course. Absolutely. Well, yeah. The, the fear that it will succeed. The fear that the, the first black president is going to be the greatest president America has ever had. Uh, how do you contest that, you know, once they prove you wrong? The, there's that fear, I think. And that's kind of what we're, we're seeing the aftershocks now. And yeah. The wider culture. You know, if you're not afraid of race, then... It, the candidate is like, valued according to policy or the show, the movie according to like the quality of production and everything. Mm-hmm. So, Serena, um, what are some of the other problems that you see about media, pop culture, and the presentation of identity? I mean, I think there's there's quite a few, and I think in terms of um, what is perceived as. Um, knowledge or educated knowledge I think like there's a problem there where um you know you have like Wikipedia and Julia Julian Assange um Cambridge Analytica where politics is used media in order to get themselves ahead I think oh right right that's really interesting how since Obama has come in and how uh, media is used to kind of further people's cause. It's almost like a lobbying tool that has a subtle way of um, being able to gather people. Like activate fears. Exactly, or... to engage people. Right. Exactly, to, um, to ac- activate fears and their agenda. I think that, that's huge. Uh, I really do. I think that's, that's a problem where people will find it hard to... I mean, you know, to differentiate what is real or, you know, what they say is fake news. Oh, yeah. That that phrase gets thrown around so often now just to negate, you know, pretty much anything you feel like negating. But anything that you that doesn't really work towards what you need or what you think you need. Oh, it doesn't really like back my story up of, you know, the events. So that one is fake. But this one does. So I'm going to use this one. Um that line is so blurred now. How are you supposed to understand someone on the other side of the country if the media that's coming to you, any way that you can find out about them, is distorted according to, I don't know, algorithm and political motive, that type of thing? Um, how did you become aware of that 
media can get it wrong. You start paying attention to more of what you consume, and you start really paying attention to what your dollar is paying for and not supporting certain things. So, you know, I, I guess a lot of it has been leading up to the 2016 ele election and really looking at the environment and paying attention to what you support, what you don't. It's a gradual change. It didn't happen overnight. I mean, you're describing... When I think of 2016, that's pretty recent. So would you say you're more recently aware of distortion in media or... No, I mean, I've seen distortion in media since I was a child and I was going to talk about this later, but, you know, the way that somebody was always represented in a telenovela, which is the media that, you know, you consume in Mexico pretty much. Right. That's... That's a distortion, and that distortion brings shame. And when I started pulling away from that distortion and finding new things and different things that exist outside of that, it's like, oh, this can be this way. You can live life this different way. And then you start, you know, picking picking up the things that open your eyes. Right. And you're not so limited anymore by the media that is out there um, that just puts you down. And then you start questioning, well, yeah, I like the story, um, but why isn't there any stories with this actor that, you know, is a Mexican actor or, you know, people of color? Um, it's always an actor that looks like this or it's always a story that looks like this like I, I keep seeing this this story over and over I mean have we ever seen um, what is uh, the, the new Lady Gaga movie that came out uh, A Star is Born A Star is Born has there been a version of A Star is Born with people of color or is there always a white singer and that's been made four times you know Gaga being this gay icon and gays were rallying around her to win the Oscar. Why is it always male and female? I, from what I understood from our conversation last time that you had a pretty sophisticated um, understanding of media and you were pretty aware early on. I would like to ask, how did you become aware of the identity distortion, identity distortion that happens in media? Do you remember that process of becoming aware? Well, I mean, I think I explained this a little bit last time, but um, I think we all do, like, in a sense, when you're young um, and you are taking, you're consuming uh, information as you get older and you interact with other people. Right. You know, um, you kind of see the difference. Well, I did. I could see the difference between what was my reality and what I saw on TV. Yeah. Or, or what I read in school books to the books I read at home. Right. Were, were very different. I don't know if it's sophisticated or, um, you know, I was just exposed to a lot of information rather than just a power, just one kind of perspective. Maybe I was uh, able to you know, taking information from different perspectives. 
Right. Yeah, and make sense of that, and that's what I've always done. Okay. Um, because, see, like, for me, for example, and we were talking about, um, you know, white representation in the media, there was not ever a lot of reason to question it. And so... Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, and I see that. And that's why I'm not... Like, when people have a point of view or perspective, I, I, I almost... And I'm not appeasing it or or anything. It's like, it's understandable. Because if I was brought up with the same sense of representation or basically privilege, I'm sure I'd think the same way. Yeah, I mean, no. But it sounds, it, it almost sounds to me, Serena, like you're apologizing for them. Yeah, not, but that's, I'm, I'm not, I'm definitely not apologizing, but I can see through it if that makes sense. Like, I can see through it. I can see through the ignorance because I'm sure if I was brought up with the, sa with the same type of opportunities and a way through, I def I'm sure I would act exactly the same because if you don't know, you don't know. And in a sense, you know, I mean, we all, we all have our ways of thinking mm -hmm. and we're all human in the end without the different the differences and we all have different degrees of things but what I'm saying is, is I, I can understand it because if I was angry about it then I, I wouldn't speak to many people Do you know so what but what things made you understand it like specifically can you point to a movie or a book or your parents giving you a talk or something some information that you consumed helped you understand it whether it was 10 sources or a hundred sources, they, you know, like you built, you built it up. Um, do you remember where that came from? Um, I mean, I can't point to like anything specific. No. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, um, I'm curious, uh, cause it's really yeah. interesting. I, I didn't realize like it wasn't, I was explaining this to somebody before, like I was, there was a young white girl, my neighbor, and it was her that said to me and pointed at my skin and said, why are you black? And I didn't, like, fully understand what she was talking about. Mm -hmm. I must have been, like, I don't know, like seven or something, seven years old. Oh, okay. okay. And she was four. Yeah, so, that, so that's, like... I mean, it's something someone's asked me to write about, but just be, just that disparity, I'd like to think you can see from that what that means. Right. What I mean by that is, is if four, a four-year-old white girl, you know, has been taught or has an understanding of race before I did. And yeah. She was trying to understand it from what she's been taught through me. So you have to understand that she was four. I was about seven or eight. Right. And I had to go and ask my mum, what did she mean? And my mum said, you should ask her why she's white. But from that, from that time, I remember being interested in why and what it meant. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. But I'm trying to explain the... Uh, like the transition from the innocence that I had, I never 
I think I wasn't born, and the minute I was born, I was like a black baby. It doesn't. Right. That's not how I was brought up. Yeah, and I think the point is, is what I'm saying is, 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 is the point that she brought it to me. I think that's what's important, is I was brought up as a human being before, you know, I had understood, you know, what it means to be out in the world looking how I look. Right. Or how I, yeah, I mean, or how I, I perceived. Yeah, and I, and I think that, I mean, for me, in, in Mexico, growing up until I, I was eight, I mean, I was surrounded by people that looked like me. Yeah, sometimes there were, like, blonde people because there's a lot of Mexican people that are blonde and, and blue-eyed and, you know, white skin. Um, nobody, you, you kind of just brought up, right? Nobody asks you, um, nobody asked me, why is your skin brown? And, I mean, granted, my skin isn't very brown, but... You know, when you're out in the sun a little bit, maybe. <laughs> but, um, no was I didn't have that experience like you did at mm -hmm. seven, I guess. Or, you know, no. I, I get what you're saying, saying that you're just raised as a child. <laughs> Your parents are not going to be like, well, you're a black child. And that's why I'm feeding you Cocoa Puffs and not, you know, cornflakes. I remember the first time I remember race being brought up. And it was my parents asking me why... Um, why do I have so many black friends? How old were you? God, I had to be like in the fifth grade. I don't even know how old you are when you're in the fifth grade. Um, it never occurred to me to go home and tell my parents that I had friends who were mixed, like of like mixed races and everything. It was only when they had signed my yearbook and they, my parents were looking at my yearbook and they're like, you have so many of these friends. And it was like, well, this is after the fact. And I've been friends with these people for a long time. And that is the first time that, I mean, granted, I grew up like mostly in suburbs, neighborhoods with the cul-de-sac where everybody could see each other's house around the circle. And, you know, we could walk everywhere and probably never see, you know, as far as I was allowed to walk, never see anyone that looked that different, except for maybe the house was a little bit better or a little bit worse. And, you know, attention was drawn to that for sure. Like, Oh, well, you don't want to talk to these people. Go to the other side of the tracks, essentially. I didn't even know that that existed. Like, I didn't even know that existed. You want to talk about, like, a bubble. It was like, well, yeah. And so I didn't know. And then we probably ended up moving somewhere. Or, you know, the elementary schools tend to be, like, smaller and more neighborhood-based. And then middle schools are more regional and high schools are even bigger. So it was probably when I went to a middle school or something, and it was a bigger mix of people that like, okay, but no, honestly, we were paying attention to the sizes of people's houses, of what classes the students were in. Like, okay, well, you don't want to go and hang out with these people because they're not in the right classes. But then it was like, when there was a bigger mix of people, when we went to the middle school, then it was like big, more diversity. And I don't know. It just didn't, like, I, it wasn't even something I was, like, conscious of. So, so were it, your parents, that they were saying this because they think it was a negative thing? Did you pick that up or did they verbalize that you shouldn't be hanging around with black people? Um, no, no. Um, it was something I probably picked up on. Um, it's just, I was really sensitive, like, maybe, maybe that was it, but... Do you think it was a good thing or a bad thing that she approached you about it? Um, 
I mean, I, I see. I, I don't see situations good or bad. I see the I see experiences. Yeah, which she um, probably was too. I mean, she was well, probably yeah, just because, confused. Uh, we were friends. We'd play in the garden and have you know we were friends. Yeah. And obviously, she was wondering why, and it had to be something that had been told to her, or you know, um, by someone or something for her to be able to form um, the question. Even you know, to spark your curiosity. Yeah, of course, curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I was never curious about her physical makeup. Ah, know. okay. That's what, uh, to me, so I don't know. To me, I was never curious about that. And I'm still not really. It's only people seem to point things out to me. The Chelsea Handler documentary, one of the metaphors that she uses that when you're a fish swimming in the pond, like somebody asks you what water is, you may not even understand the question because you have never seen outside of the water. And that's one of the things that, you know, that's one of my agendas because we're all united and, you know, put against each other in all different configurations. And sometimes we may not even be aware of where those configurations are because I want to know also, um, how you might have been impacted by pop culture distortions of identity. Because you start to recognize that they're there and you're aware of them, you know this is a problem, but how do you start uncovering the damage or the reactions that you've had, maybe without even realizing it? From a young, from a young age, representations of identity in media have had an, an impact on me. Some positive, but in many negative ways. So like I was saying earlier, telenovelas, growing up in the Mexican culture, that's what you watch around the TV with your family. And as a queer gay kid growing up, um, that's all, that's all I have. And that brings when a character like that is, if it ever is represented, um, it brings, you know, feelings of shame. Um, up because, you know, they, they represent a mold, you know, here's the guy, here's the girl, they have some trouble and tribulations and then they get married. So that's like, that is the mold that is represented there. And right. me with my Mexican background and family and religion, all of that impacts identity and it just throws, it throws it into a, a confusion as you're growing up. Um, and so that just became something that I needed to break away from, um, much of, uh, Mexican media mixes religion and roles, um, like I said, that, that you have to identify, uh, and that are only represented in, in TV. Um, uh, so like in my teens, once I was in America and I had the ability to access more media that helped me explore and understand my feelings, uh, that opened up a bit. So movies like The Dreamers, where the lines were blurred between what love can be. I, oh, right. I yeah. Know, yeah. I like, um, then you have, you know, movies like Boys Don't Cry or Bad Education, where you get to see the lives of gay people. Yes, living with struggles, but still living their truth. Right. Um, seeing these lives represented even in a small way helped me deal with my feelings and, and it helped me feel less alone. Um, uh, just some other movies, uh, Maurice 
Cabaret, Hedwig oh, and the Angry Inch, yeah. Angels in America. I mean, the list goes on. It shows like Queer as Folk or even Buffy. Um, just helped me see that there's other paths in life rather than hiding who I am as a gay man and hiding behind a religion or living a lie. I mean, really, I did. I, I there was a t- there was a point where I had to decide. Okay, am I gonna, you know, be with this girl and marry her and live that lie, or am I gonna not do that and you know live my life? Right. And I decided, no, I'm not gonna do that. I basically found what could help me in this aspect of my life, but even then, like most of the media, I found and consumed, you know, really rarely featured characters that looked like me and. And now on the other side of things, then I can, like I said, open my eyes and begin to question certain things about that. Like, it's just a, it's like a lifeline. Um, and, you know, some people, some kids that don't have that lifeline. Like, I was just thinking as Rick was talking, like, there, it's a double-edged sword, really, when it comes to media. There are the positives and the negatives. But I, I remember, you know, I've, read books um, from a young age and was always looking at um, images um, that I felt represented me because my mum, she was a, um, a black history tutor. So from a young age, you know, I kind of got that instilled in me. Right, It was right. just something that I knew. So when it came to media, I, I did see positive and negative aspects, you know, stereotypes. I mean, you've got Gone with the Wind. I can find the positives in it, though. I found that movie dreamy and romantic, uh, regardless of the subject matter. And the actresses in it that played the um, the, the uh, black parts, it was interesting to watch. And as much as it, it, some see it as a negative aspect, I can see the positives in it. I mean, and then you've got films like the ones that affected me in a positive way, um, a film called Daughters of the Dust, which is a brilliant, like, art house movie. And mm-hmm. it was it was just beautiful the way that it kind of gave you a different aspect rather than, you know, a film of a stereotypical character. Right. Of a black female perspective. And I just thought it was, it, it was really good. I recommend anyone to watch it. I mean, and the same as Rick, you can, it doesn't matter what the story is, really. I mean, it could be from whoever's perspective. It's the struggle or, you know, it's the journey, it's the narrative that you kind of relate to. And the older you get, it's the experience. Yeah, I remember for me, the impact um, was at just a certain point, And I think it was like right after I graduated from high school, I just felt so betrayed by media, I stopped watching most everything, except I stumbled onto David Lynch. I'm telling you, for like a year, I had Twin Peaks and Firewalk with me just on loop in my room, and I wouldn't play anything else. And that was, I I wasn't exactly watching it, but it was the only media was any pop culture uh, media that was coming in to my room, my existence. And even after I moved out of my family's home, I intentionally didn't have a television for years. 
And I didn't. I bought one television and I painted it a, a solid color of aqua green, and like wrote all over it. And that was the only TV that I had in the house for years. So, so, so what was it that? What were you so betrayed by? It just got to the point where, like, okay, I think Friends was like a big series at the time, and I didn't give a shit about any of those characters. They weren't saying anything that was relevant to me. The whole formalized television stuff where um, the, like, just what was passing for entertainment just didn't speak to me. The more attention I paid to it, the more I was just going to be brainwashed. And and I was I listened to music and I loved music, but more than that, I liked getting a keyboard and playing the sounds and going around recording things. And I loved painting and taking pictures and kind of creating and recreating my own little world and doing my own stuff. And I just, I totally broke with it. It felt like what it was, it was like the sitcom formula was like bullshit or like the soap opera was just crap. Or, you know, even the nightly news was just so um, slanted. I totally broke with it. It felt like a big lie. And because I wasn't accepting the fact that I could learn through empathy. That's kind of how I'm understanding what you and uh, Rick are saying about, well, the, the person doesn't have to look like me. They don't have to be living like me, but I can understand empowerment or, you know, um, creativity or love through the eyes of somebody else, through empathy. It was like, no, I just, I didn't have that capacity. Sorry to cut in. Um, I don't think it's it's purely um, empathy for me. Right. What it is is, you know, since I have I've had my awareness from a young age, I and and I explained it last time how it, it became like a way of mistrust. Right. So it's almost um, uh, observation of the other. So you're observing them and you're observing the other, but you're seeing things in it that you can relate to. Um, and even lessons that you can apply to yourself. Exactly. Okay. And also how to communicate and how to live in a hegemonic society uh, who has a fixed way of how I should be perceived. Right. For me, watching friends or, you know, I observe so that I can see and articulate you know, where the problem lies. But did they, I mean, these, these people, they seem more like styrofoam than anything human. And I started out and I would interact with the people around me. And like, I, would be, I had moved to Austin at a certain point and it was like, no, these are, this is what I understand humanity to be. It's not this styrofoam stuff that's coming through the television. I mean, I, I wouldn't even feel like I was observing any other I, it was like I was observing static that had like a fake human face on it. Yeah, no, that no, it does. It definitely makes sense. But for me, you see, in the world I was living in then, or the way people were relating to me is discrimination, or I'd be put aside, or people would be chosen before me, even though I've got the same uh, qualifications, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Of course, I've got many stories right. about being a minority. So. Yes, watching the, the styrofoam or the skewed news that would always be against people that looks like me or people from my community, watching the news and observing it, not just taking it in empathetically or or believing the bullshit. Right. The fact that I, I would watch it and I'd do the same now. I can watch it and 
I've got a sense now. I can pick up the lie. I can watch friends and see where they're, I mean, maybe friends isn't a good um, example, but something like friends or any program, Disney. Right. I can separate you know, the positives uh, of the message they're trying to tell, but I can also see the negative propaganda that it is trying to support and consistently support. It's, right. obvious. And it's, it's obvious to me now. In yeah. Any, for any form of media, mediatization, I can just see it. For well, yeah, audience. you pick it up and... You, you pick it up in the smallest ways too. I mean, exactly. Yeah. How how is it always in everything that I've seen, Sex in the City or anything? Oh, you go to Mexico, don't drink the water, <laughs> like because you're gonna get diarrhea. Who cares about you know these Mexican people who have this history and were very like astrologically, uh, mathematically yeah. astute, yeah. right? Um, yeah, and it's, it's kind of like thrown away to like, you know, oh, well, you can't drink the water. Well, okay, I guess I won't go or, you know. Yeah, and, you see, and, see, and you see, that's about fixed perspective. It's what they decide to tell you. Yeah, I mean, down to the side, down to the the, the way that the map represents land mass. Exactly. Um, yeah. Africa land mass is just gigantic compared to, you know, just the U.S. or anything like that, the America. When I was like, um, I was about 10 or 12 and like I came in and, <laughs> and my mom, she kind of sat us down, took me and my brothers down and she said, look at this map. And she yeah. we have those big wall maps that you have. Uh huh. Right. Huge ones, and she turned it upside down and said, "This is the way the world is." Oh wow! <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> you know, this Dang. is how the world is. <laughs> you know, she was. You know. Yeah, That's amazing. From then, it's like you know, she was consistently kind of opening my mind to kind of what I was told in school. To, right. To kind of. The, that there's other information out there to choose from. You know, just giving us this completely different perspective. Right, you know, right. It, 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 it was food. It was food for me, and it's helped in navigating. That's that's amazing. And, you know, I, I think that it'd be great to adopt that kind of metaphor for, I think, what this podcast is about. Don't be afraid to turn the map upside down. That's really inspiring. <laughs> Yeah, I'll never forget. All right, it. well, thank you again. I've loved this conversation. All right, everybody, have a good day, and right. thank you. you. Right, okay, bye. 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 Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. We put it out weekly, and follow us on social media. We're on every platform: Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're everywhere.